Genesis chapter number 3. And as the Lord gives us liberty to, I'd like to preach for a few moments on Satan's devices. You know, the Bible says, and we'll read here in a moment, that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And uh, you better believe that Satan has a plan. He has a plan. The wonderful thing is that the Word of God gives us a lot of insight into the way that he operates. And you know, it's the will of God for us to have victory. I'm not saying we'll never get discouraged, and I'm not saying it'll never be hard, and I'm not saying there won't ever be difficulty, but I do believe it's the will of God for us to live in victory. And uh, I believe we can do that, not because we're anything or because we've done anything, but because victory was won at Calvary. Amen? And uh, I believe we can do that by God's grace and with His strength. And uh, Satan does have a plan. God has a will for your life, but Satan has a will for your life as well. And uh, understand that you're either going to do the will of God or the will of Satan in uh, certain degrees or to certain degrees in your life. And Paul warned us of this in Second Corinthians chapter 2. And there's, there, there's six or seven verses that convey this thought that we could read, but I've chosen this one. Uh, verse number 11 of chapter 2, he says, "...lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." That tells us that he is calculated and he is deliberate in what he does. And he's described that way. Peter describes him as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. That means there's certain people that are easy prey for it. And there's certain lives that gain an open door for Satan and uh, provide him an opportunity. And uh, we need to guard ourselves, guard our church, guard our homes, guard our hearts and not allow Satan to get an advantage in those places. And I believe here in Genesis chapter 3, as mankind sins and is spiraled into depravity, and Satan, of course, has a major part in that, I believe we gain some insight into the way that he operates. You know, as you study the Bible, there's what some theologians would call the law of first mention. And what that means and and, uh, entails in the Word of God is that when something is mentioned the first time, there are certain qualities that, that it will carry with it that are characterized in that first instance, that it will carry with it either until the end of the Word of God or until there's some necessary dispensational shift in the Word of God. Uh, the first time we see sacrifice in the Word of God is here in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God uh, makes uh, coats out of animal skins and robes Adam and Eve, and they are then allowed in the presence of God. And sacrifice all through the Bible carries that connotation of making us fit for the presence of God. Not our sacrifice, but Christ's sacrifice for us. And so in the same way, I believe that as we see the way that Satan operates, we can gain an understanding of what he seeks to do today in our lives and how we can better uh, fight against those things in our day-to-day existence. So look with me in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read the first 19 verses, and then we'll have a word of prayer. The Word of God says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken... For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to be in your house this evening. And God, we pray that you'd help us humbly to surrender ourselves to the investigation of your word. Lord, as you would turn the searchlight of scriptures upon our hearts and lives, and through the work of the Holy Spirit make known unto us places where we need to draw closer to you, I pray that we would humbly surrender. And Father, that we would yield to your working and you are moving. Now, Lord, we pray that you would fortify us this evening, and God, that you'd help us and give us strength, and Lord, that you would strengthen our lives tonight for the battles that we have, both now and ahead. And Lord, preserve us, help our homes, God, help our hearts, and help our our church this evening. And God, we just trust you to do that which we are unable. So, Father, we're looking unto you to do it, and we'll be sure to praise you and thank you for it. When it's accomplished, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, most of you, I'm sure, in this room, you've read Genesis 3 probably a number of times. I'm sure you've heard it a number of times. And there's a lot of things that can be dealt with in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, you'll find this law of first mention being implemented quite a bit. You notice what it says in verse number 6 where it says, "...and the woman saw that the tree..." was good for food. You know that the Bible teaches us uh, that the psalmist said, or Job said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. And as you go through the Word of God, you find that the eye seems to be the window to the soul and the means through which often iniquity can enter a life. If you look at the, the uh, trifecta of the statement that she makes, it says that, that she saw the tree, that it was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. You find that unholy trinity that comprises all the world has to offer, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And as you go through this passage, you will find that even the M.O., if we could put it that way, of what Satan does, and the things that he seeks to accomplish in the lives of Adam and Eve, that he's still up to the same tricks today that he's always been up to. 
And I believe we could probably summarize the goals that He has for our lives in a few things. And that's what I seek to do this evening. As we look at the result of man's sin and man falling from perfection. I want you to notice the first thing that Satan attacked this evening. And the first thing he attempts to do in our lives. This is priority number one to him. I mean, if you ever, if you watch any, I, I don't know, you're probably too spiritual to ever watch a movie. I know that, right? But if you ever watch a movie, uh, especially these military movies, they got all kinds of special words. Probably some of the military in here could even tell me some of those for, for priorities. I mean, there's like, there's priority one, you know? And then priority two, and you know, that's real tough to crack, right? But there's priority one and priority two, and there's classified and, and super classified and super double classified and super double secret, don't tell nobody classified, all these different varying degrees. Let me say that the first priority of Satan in our lives, I mean, this is priority number one, is to destroy our faith. Now, when I say destroy our faith, I don't mean faith in the sense of a system of religious belief and ideology, but I mean faith in the sense of our effectual dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Satan doesn't mind for you to keep your religion if he can destroy your relationship with Christ. He doesn't mind for you to go to church Sunday after Sunday just as long as God don't meet with you. He doesn't mind for you to read your Bible just as long as you don't get anything out of it. He doesn't mind for you to go in the prayer closet just as long as you don't grab hold of heaven. And what he really seeks to destroy is your relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't say he was trying to get you to lose your salvation. You know, I don't believe that Satan wastes his time on something that can't be done. Once we've been saved, we're eternally saved. That's the only kind of life God has is eternal life. So that's the only kind that he gives. He doesn't have temporary life. Uh, and I don't believe Satan is trying to destroy our faith in that sense. What I mean is I believe he is trying to wreck our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think there's a few ways that he's trying to do that. I want you to notice them with me. I want you to notice that, first off, he's trying to get us to distrust the Word of God. Now, notice the first phrase, the very first time in Scripture recorded for us that Satan utters his voice. What does he say? Look with me at verse number 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, and notice these next three words, hath God said. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What was the premise of his first statement in the garden? The premise was you can't really trust the Word of God. That's part of the reason there's an all-out assault on the Word of God today. Let me tell you something. I, I'm not satisfied for people to tell me that we just have uh, j- just the Word of God, but not the words of God. That dog don't hunt as far as I'm concerned. If you don't have the words of God, then you don't have the Word of God. I don't know about you, but it's words that make up the Word. Uh, words are a pretty important thing. That's one of the dangerous things in the society that we live in today is that words are beginning to have no meaning. Uh, we just had a, there was a, uh, the big Supreme Court decision on the Obamacare. Listen, I don't care how you feel about it, if it helps you, if it hurts you, or whatever it may be. But there's something very dangerous that the Supreme Court did. They looked at a provision, and seven times in that legislation, it had the phrase, by the state, Brother Al, by the state. And there were, in fact, clauses within that legislation that denoted the difference between the federal government and the state. And in the, uh, in the decision uh, that uh, Justice Roberts wrote, he talked about the intention of the law that was given. And uh, Justice uh, Scalia came out and made this statement and said, We live in a time now where words have no meaning because they judge the intention rather than the distinct words. And they changed that phrase, by the state, to mean by the state or by the federal government. 
Now, let me tell you something. There's wars fought over that distinction between by the state and by the federal government. Now, listen, I don't care what you think about it. I'm just merely pointing this out, that even in the highest courts in the land, they're telling us words have no meaning. Words have no meaning. That, that rather it's the word, quote-unquote, of a piece of legislation than the words of legislation. But yet it's the words that make up the word. And it's no different with the word of God. Let me tell you something. If this book is not perfect, then my Savior is not perfect. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the greatest thing, the greatest blow that Satan can ever do to your life is to cause you distrust the word of God. To get you to a place where you say that, just like he said that. You know, did God really, really say? Nowadays, we live in a time where if something doesn't agree with somebody's lifestyle, they say, hath God really said? Hath God re-? You know, I know the Bible says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. But did God really say? You know, I, I, I know that the Word of God says that, that mankind shall not lie down with mankind as with womankind. But, but did God really say? Did God really say? I know that the Word of God says to come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll be a father unto you. But did God really say? And it's all become relative. That's by the design of Satan. And if he can shake your faith in the Word of God, he's just about got everything else sewed up. This right here is the bread from heaven. This is the water of life. This is the air that we breathe. This is the sword that we carry. And if he can rob that from you, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. A lot of folks have an academic belief in the Word of God, meaning they know it's the Word of God, but they don't treat it like the Word of God. And that's evidenced by the fact that they don't ever open it. Uh, you can go, and from week to week, I mean, you could, you could see the fingerprints in dust on their Bible if you were to pick it up. Uh, don't tell me you believe it's really the Word of God. You may have an academic belief, but don't tell me you've got a heart belief if, if it's no more important to you than to just pick it up and read it. See, the truth of the matter is, when we really believe this book is what God says it is, it'll become a vital part of our lives. I mean, we'll need it. We won't just want it. We'll need it. As the heart panteth after the water brook, the psalmist said. I mean, we'll long after it. And once he can take that away from you, you're not, you've not got long for the count. You've not got long for the fight. I believe he wanted to destroy uh, their faith in the Word of God and cause them to distrust God's Word. But then notice number two, we see him deifying man. Look what it says in verse number 5. Uh, well, let's look at verse 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, isn't that just like Satan to wrap up just a little grain of truth in a big old blanket of a lie? Now, it's true that they would know good and evil, but do you know what he was selling them? And Satan always, let me tell you something, he's the father of lies. And you better believe that whatever he's trying to tell you, though there may be a grain of truth somewhere at the very heart of it, the substance of what he's trying to sell you is a falsehood and a lie. It's almost a little encouraging. I don't know if you're like me, but occasionally Satan will, will come up. I say Satan. I understand that it probably not Satan himself, but, but uh, I do believe satanic forces are at work in this world. You can call me a nut if you want, but you have to call the Bible a nut too because the Bible says we war not against flesh and blood. And sometimes Satan will come up alongside and say, Man, what a failure you are. Man, what a failure you are. Man, you're no kind of Christian. Let me tell you something. That's one of the most encouraging things that can happen in your life. Do you know why? Because he's the father of lies. And that tells you that something's going right in your spiritual walk. Or else he wouldn't be wasting his time with you. He comes along beside him. And you know what he basically tries to sell him? 
He tries to say, if you eat of this fruit, then you get to decide what's right and wrong. Then it's your choice. You'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. The second greatest lie that Satan ever tells us, the first is that God's Word is not absolute. The second is that truth is relative. And you know what he likes to tell us? Whatever you like, whatever you think, whatever you believe, that's sufficient. You know, one of the dangerous things in the culture and society that we're living in, and we're bearing the fruit of this. In our country, we have had for many, many years the establishment clause uh, that uh, government shall not establish any particular religion and shall not uh, have respect unto any particular religion one over against another. And I believe that's right. I believe that's a good thing, don't you? I believe that's a good thing. But here's what's happened in this age of government that we live in is that we have then taken the word of government to be equivalent with the word of God. And we have made the assumption that because all men are free to practice their faith and their beliefs, that must mean that all men's faith and beliefs are the same and are equal. Let me tell you something. There is right and there is wrong. Like it or not, there is right and there is wrong. And one of the worst things you can ever believe in your life is that it's all about what I think. Let me tell you something. Let, let me clue you in, okay? I get, I'm going to shiver your timbers. It's not about what you think. In fact, what you think doesn't make a difference on anything. I know that would discourage Dr. Phil. I know Mr. Osteen would have a stroke, but it's not about you. And it's not about what you think. And what you believe has no bearing on what the truth is. This right here is the standard of truth. And you can say that it's all about what you think. You can die and go to your grave thinking it's all about what you think. But that isn't what it's all about. It's all about the truth of the Word of God. We live in a day where ministry is tailored to fit the fleshly whims and carnal desires of the average lost, unregenerate individual. Rather than being the house of God, uh, it's been made the house of flesh and the house of man and a den of thieves. And we wonder why the church is weak and anemic in the day that we live in. It's no wonder that we're in the condition we're in. We have deified man. We have made the house of God a place for the worship of man. We may come in and say that we're worshiping God, but when uh, preachers and pastors and uh, ministry leaders are uh, taking polls to find out what's going to draw people in and what's going to uh, get people through the door and what appeals to them, we evidently live in a day where the concerns of man outweigh the concerns of God. I think we need to get... Hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not against fellowship. I'm not against people enjoying themselves in the house of God. We have fun around here, amen? And I believe when you really worship, I believe it is a joyful thing... When you worship, and I believe the joy of the Lord is our strength. But let me tell you something. It's not about what you or I think or what you or I like. It's about the truth of the Word of God. Tries to get him to deify man. But then notice the third thing, a disobedience to God's command. What happened in verse number 6? And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. You see, it begins by causing you to neglect your relationship with the Word of God. And then the next step is to get you to substitute your relative thinking to God's absolute thinking. And then you know what's eventually going to happen? You're going to do what your flesh wants to do. We all do. We all do. Let me tell you something. It is natural to do the wrong thing. It is supernatural to do the right thing. It's natural to do the wrong thing. My little boy, as he gets smarter, he gets trickier. Did that happen with your kids? Okay, I, that, good. That's normal then. I know you think he's precious. You think you don't do anything wrong, but you don't see him. He's sneaky. He's vindictive. You go into his bedroom at night and you hear him sharpening things. And 
You don't have to teach them how to do wrong. They know how to do wrong. You have to teach them to do right. It's the natural thing to do the wrong thing. It's supernatural to do the right thing. And so understand, as there is an absence and a deficit in your relationship with Christ, you will do the wrong thing. Without fail, you will. As you do not yield yourself to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that to whomever ye yield yourself members, that to them ye are the servants. Whether to righteousness unto life or unto iniquity unto death. You see, the truth is, you will yield to something. When I was a youth pastor, I used to always tell the young people, listen, you're going to serve something. You're going to serve something. One of the lies that Satan tells us is that we can live our own life and do our own thing. Let me ask you something. Go down and find the, find the drunkard on the street, willing to do anything in the world so they can get another drink, and ask yourself if he's a slave to something. Go down, listen, go down and find the woman that has sold her body and sold herself into a lifestyle, and ask yourself if she has any chains of bondage to anything. Go find the drug addict with the track marks in their arms that are willing to steal and to kill and to do anything to get another fix, and ask yourselves if they're slaves to something. You'll be a servant to something, my friend. The question is, what master do you want? What master do you want? He gets them to disobey God's commands. I believe he wants to destroy our faith, our relationship with Christ. I believe with that, one of the things that's key is this. I believe he not only wants to destroy our faith, but I believe he wants to disrupt our fellowship. I want you to listen very carefully to some of the things I'm about to say because I believe they're so uh, relevant to the things that we go through in our lives. Uh, Part of the desire of Satan is to isolate a human being. When you find in the Word of God, and don't get me wrong, I mean, God has the ability, even in our loneliest times, to give us strength and to give us... And He is the God of all comfort, and I'm thankful for that. But one of the things that Satan always seeks to do in an individual's life is to isolate. You know, this is, this is true of lions as well, whom Satan is compared to. A lion will seek out the weakest, slowest prey and try to cut that animal from the herd and get it isolated by itself because it's easier to destroy it that way. And you know that Satan's the same way with you and I. He tries to isolate us in our lives and in our conditions. I want you to notice, first off, that he wanted to disrupt fellowship in their hearts. And I mean with the Lord God. Now you say, preacher, you just preached on that. No, what I mean is this. You find only a handful of times you'll find this in the Word of God. I may preach on it sometime soon, just because it sounds like it preached good. Amen. And uh, I want you to notice what happened. Look down at verse number 8. The Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, what's the next phrase, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? You'll find a handful of times in Scripture where people run from the presence of God. Jonah was another individual that was this way. And where did he wind up when he was running from the presence of God? Alone, asleep, in the bottom of the boat. You see, one of the things Satan seeks to do is to get and be a wedge in your relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants to stop your communication with Him. You ever notice that the first thing that stops when you do something wrong in your life is your prayer life? Am I telling the truth? When you sin, when you do the wrong thing, the first thing that seems to stop is your prayer life. You might keep reading your Bible, you might keep going to church, but the first thing, mark her down, that you'll stop doing when you have sin in your heart is you'll quit praying. 
The reason is because we feel as though we're hypocrite when we pray. I don't know why, but for some reason we think of every element of the Christian life as involving more parties than just two. You know, it would be a good thing if we get to the place in our Christian walks where we saw our Christian life as being lived in the audience of one before the Almighty God. We'd be a lot better off if we'd see that He's the one with whom we have to do. We're not doing it for anybody else. We're doing it for Him. It don't matter if nobody else sees because He sees. But for some reason, every element of the Christian life other than the prayer closet, we see it as being a very public matter. And I guess it's because it is a prayer closet. Nobody can see what we're praying. Nobody can hear if we're not around them what we're praying. And so oftentimes, you know why we quit praying? Because we know the communion's not there anyway. We know the communion's not there anyway, so why bother with praying? Because there's no one to impress but God, and we know that it's not impressing Him. He disrupts the fellowship in our hearts. I I know that me, one of the hardest things in my life, you know when the battle is won and lost in my spiritual walk, I'm sharing with you in mine. I I guess it's true in yours, but I, I know it's true in mine. In my spiritual walk, when I've sinned and I've done wrong, it all hinges on the breaking of my will in yielding to Him and coming to Him to ask for forgiveness. If my will won't break, I'll stay out of the will of God for as long as I can. But when God breaks my will and draws me back into the prayer closet, then and there it seems that the battle's won. I'm not saying there aren't lasting effects when we've sinned and done wrong, and I'm not saying it doesn't oftentimes take time to build back that close communion and fellowship that we had with the Lord. But I know that if God can break my will and bring me back into communion, that it won't be long before I'll be back in sweet fellowship with Him. It all hinges on that. You might be sitting here and say, Preacher, you know, I've not prayed in a long time. Why don't you ask yourself why you've not prayed in a long time? Why don't you sit there and, and think back for a moment and examine? Maybe there was something that occurred at that moment when you quit praying. It would probably shock us to find out how few people pray. That's the truth. I'm not saying I'm some great prayer warrior. I, I'm just saying it probably shock us to find out how few Christians really pray and how many people it's been days, weeks, months, there might be somebody sitting here, it's been years since you've really got alone with God and prayed. Let me tell you something, friends. Satan's won in your life if that's you. Heretofore, up to this day, Satan's won. And he'll gain the victory if you don't allow something to change. I believe he wanted to disrupt fellowship in in their hearts, but I believe he wanted to disrupt fellowship in their homes. Now, I know they're trying to change the institution of marriage. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you might as well uh, try to change the color of the sky or the color of the grass because marriage is what marriage is. And if you need proof positive of that, notice what happens as soon as something goes wrong. What do, listen, ladies, get ready to be on shouting ground. I'm going to preach for you. The first thing Adam does is said, huh, that's her fault, right? Some things don't never change, do they? That's her fault even though we know that the Bible teaches us that it was Adam as the federal head of the human race that made that distinct decision. She was deceived, but Adam chose. He knew what he was getting into. And I understand, listen, it's a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ partaking in sin so that His church, His bride might have fellowship with Him. I'm aware of that, but it don't change the fact that when He did it, it was sin. It was wrong. You say, how do you know? We wouldn't be sinners if He hadn't sinned. And so we know it was sin. And the first thing he does, you know what he does? He said, that's her fault. That's her fault. And uh, she looked over at the serpent and said, that's the serpent's fault. You can imagine maybe the debate and discussion they had. Um, 
I don't know. I, I, I understand some skills are learned, and I believe these are. Uh, and couldn't you see them both trying to figure out how to sew together a fig leaf apron hiding there in the bushes? I don't know about you, but if you, some of you, this is true now. If you'll testify and be honest, you know this is true. Uh, that you, every time you go to do something with your spouse, fix something, do something, build something, you like to get divorced, right? Am I right? Some folks, I mean, that's just part of it, you know? And I, I can see them there in the garden. That sweet harmony and fellowship has been broken. Has been broken. Let me tell you something. The second priority in Satan's life after destroying your faith is destroying your home. The home is the backbone of the nation. The home is the backbone of civilization. The home is the backbone of the church. When our church has weak homes, our church is weak. It's weak. And one of the things that Satan will do is try to drive a wedge in your home, in your marriage, with your kids. We need to be far more vigilant than we are about not allowing Satan to get an advantage in our homes. Because there's been many homes wrecked by the devil, hasn't there? Many homes wrecked by Satan. And don't think yours is above it. Let me tell you something. There's been far better marriages than yours or mine that Satan has wrecked. And that's his main priority, is to disrupt fellowship in that home. You notice that when sin gets in, Harmony in the home is broken. Now, easy now. We can, we can get in the ditch with this. Don't go looking at your spouse. But understand that you and I, each individual one of us, we hold ourselves accountable to the Lord, and He holds us accountable. And you know what I found this? That it's hard to be right with my wife when I'm not right with my Lord. When I'm not right with my wife, it's a good indication that maybe I need to check whether I'm right with my Lord. Hey, listen, you'll either receive this or you won't, all right? I can't make you receive this. I, I mean, I, I, I can spoon-feed you, but I can't force-feed you. You're either going to accept what I'm saying or not. But when there's disharmony in the home, oftentimes the first place you can look is your own spiritual condition. You say, but it's his fault. Well, did it fix it to say that? Well, but it's her fault. Well, did it fix it to say that? You know, maybe if we would... The Bible says we're to pray for them that despitefully use us. Right? How much more should we be praying for our spouse? Most people are better to a total stranger than they are to their spouse. Most people would never talk to a total stranger the way they'll talk to their spouse. Hey, I'm raising my hand. I'm not, I'm not going to be a hypocrite in here tonight. I'm raising my own hand. There's times that I'll say things to her I wouldn't say to a total stranger. Don't look at me cross-eyed. You know it's true for you as well. Times when I'll show a coldness to her that I'd never show to a total, that I'd never show to one of you or to a total stranger even. See? Boy, that's hard truth. That's hard truth. That's hard truth. Something's wrong when we'll treat a total stranger better than we will our spouse. I know it don't taste good, but go ahead and take it. Because this is the kind of stuff that helps. This is the kind of stuff that strengthens homes. We need to just see it like it is and call it like it is. And when something's wrong, we need to go to the one that can fix it to fix it. And I don't mean your spouse. And I don't mean the therapist. And I don't mean your best friend. I mean the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's able. He's able. And oftentimes in our marriages, when something goes awry, I'm not saying it's your fault. (laughs) But listen, the Lord's in the business of fixing things that ain't His fault. Am I right? He's in the business of fixing things that ain't His fault. 
I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying it's her fault or his fault or whoever's fault. I'm saying the Lord is the mender of broken hearts and the binder of broken lives. And He can do what nobody else can do. We see that He wants to destroy the fellowship that we have in the home. But I believe also He wants to disrupt the fellowship we have in the house of God. I'm not going to preach for a long time on this, because otherwise, you know, you'll realize that, you know, you fuss and fight too much. But I... <laughs> Let me tell you something. Most churches, not most, but a lot, a lot of churches are war zones. War zones. Uh, An army can't cover much ground while it's fighting. Am I right? Especially when it's fighting itself. Especially when it's fighting itself. Uh, The truth of the matter is, Satan, if if Satan can destroy, he don't have to destroy the doctrine of a church if he can destroy the spirit of a church. Now, understand that destroying the doctrine will destroy the spirit of a church. But there's a lot of churches that, like old Leonard Ravenhill said, they've got doctrine straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. Man, they've got everything right on paper. But there's a wicked and cold and oppressive spirit when you walk through the doors. And Satan, as the oppressor, and he is the oppressor, would seek to engender that in every single church that he can. Uh, you know, that's part of the reason that it's so important that we be open and honest one with another. When we've done wrong, that's why the Bible says that if your brother have aught with you, you're to go to him. You know why that is? To air out the problems and to deal with the situations because Satan's seeking to gain an advantage. You know, that's the context of what Paul's talking about. Paul says that to whom I I forgave anything, uh, he says, I forgave it in the person of Christ and for his sake. And he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of you. Bitterness is an open door for the devil in a church. You let yourself get bitter. And I don't mean just just an open door to bitterness and to, to oppression in your life. I mean an open door to oppression in the whole church. It's high time we saw ourselves as members of a body and members in particular and having a responsibility one to another. Let me tell you something. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects those around me. And if I allow Satan into my life, I'm also allowing him into the church life. Not because not I'm the pastor, but because I'm a member. And I have an interaction one with another with each and every one of you. So I believe he wants to try to disrupt our fellowship. And then let me share with you one final thing and I'm done. I believe that Satan seeks to destroy our faith and Satan seeks to disrupt our fellowship. But I believe ultimately Satan seeks to discourage us in life. You think about the things that were a result of what took place in the garden. By the way, if you, if you want a verse for, for uh, disrupting a fellowship in the house of God, you could look at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Used to, the Garden of Eden was a place of worship, but now they are barred from the Garden of Eden, and an angel with a fiery sword is set outside the gate to keep the way. And now the fellowship they have with God is at a distance. But, you know, I believe that Satan has basically two avenues he goes to destroy a person's life, either through distraction or through discouragement. And if Satan can't distract you, he'll try to discourage you. We find this to be true in the life of Elijah. Elijah was a man of singular vision. Elijah was a man that that when all of the country was given over to Baal worship, he stood alone and he was willing to serve God. And Satan couldn't get to him through distraction. But as he came down off of Mount Carmel... And he ran back to Jezreel, and he gets to the gate, and he finds out that Jezebel is seeking his life. The Bible says of Elijah that when he saw that, 
he fled. In other words, he took his eyes off of the Lord and put them on his problems. And we find him three days later, or well, probably longer than three. He went three days' journey into the wilderness, but he, had, but he traveled even farther than that. But not long after that, we find him underneath the juniper tree, praying and asking God to kill him. If Satan can't get to us through distraction, he'll get to us through discouragement. And I think there's a few ways that he seeks to do that, or a few things that give an avenue to that in our lives if we're not careful. And I think we see this in the result of the sin that they had committed. I want you to notice, uh, look with me at verse number 16. What, what does the Lord say to the woman? It says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Can any woman testify to that tonight? Did the Lord, did, did the Lord do that? Has he multiplied? I mean, listen, there's, I, I, I like to think I have a threshold of pain. I don't know that childbirth fits within it. I can put up with a lot and I can tolerate a lot. I don't think I can squeeze another human being out of my body, though. I got great admiration for my wife and for every woman that's born a child. And uh, understand that sometimes Satan will discourage us through the pain we endure. The pain we endure. One of the results of sin was physical pain. Physical pain. I, I always, when I, when I visit with someone in the hospital, and uh, one of the things that I usually try to say to them, either by means of just fellowship or maybe while we're praying, is that every time we have a physical battle, we have a spiritual battle that accompanies it. Anytime that you get sick, Satan will always seek to take advantage. You know, that's true even in the wild of a, of a lion, that oftentimes they will seek out the animals that are sick because they're easy prey. If they've got an injury or a malady or something, makes them a little slower, makes them a little weaker, and they're easy prey. And that's true in our lives. Sometimes as we endure pain, endure sickness, as the body doesn't cooperate. You know, it seems like the older you get, the more rebellious your body gets, Right? Oftentimes, that's a means of great discouragement. That's normal. There's a lot of things that happen. Me and Miss Karen were talking before the service started about, about the hormones of the body. And there's a lot of things that, that men a lot smarter than me don't even understand about the human body. But oftentimes, as we find ourselves bedridden or may, maybe through a time of recovery, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital for any minute. You know what I'm talking about. You can only lay under those fluorescent lights for so long till it just depresses you just discourages you. Oftentimes, if you've been a healthy individual during life and you go through something that causes you to have to slow down and you're not coming, you don't know what it's like to slow down. Maybe if you're the type of individual that has always been very independent and always worked and done for yourself and now you have to look to others to do that which you cannot do, those can all be open doors for discouragement if we're not careful. You say, what do we need to do when those spiritual battles come along? Well, just as with anything, on the battlefield, the, the directions and commands and orders of the general are always important. But they're so vitally important when the battle begins. You know, that's true in our spiritual lives as well. Those times when Satan would seek an advantage, it's oh so vital and oh so important that we draw especially close to the Son of God and maintain our fellowship with Him. I think in the pain that we're in. I think also not just in the pain that we're in, but in the positions that we maintain in life. Notice the next thing, and I, I'm going to try to be careful or else you'll run me out of here on pole, but look at the next thing that the Lord says to Eve. 
He says, In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That tells me something. That, that tells me that the present structure of the home, at least in a practical sense, did not exist before man sinned. Because God is instituting the order of the home. There are not children yet, but as it's just a husband and a wife, God institutes an order. And that order, just as is in the New Testament, was here in the garden, is that the husband is the head of the home. I'm sorry if it upsets you, but that's what the Bible teaches. And notice what it says. She said, your desire shall be to him. There's a lot of ways we can understand that. We could understand that as meaning that her responsibility in life would be to see to his needs. But I sort of believe it's this way. You know that as a woman yields to the Lord in her life, not as she yields to her husband, but as she yields to the Lord, and in as much as she sees her place and position in the home as a yielding to the Lord, because that's what the Bible says, that you're to do it as unto the Lord, she will find a joy in the role that she has in the home. Just as the husband, as he sees his responsibilities in the home as being responsibilities not just to his family, but to the Lord. Listen, I'm giving you some truth. Stay with me now. It'll be a joy. But understand that as sin enters our heart and lives, both of those positions... And listen, fellas, I know you don't understand why ladies are so upset about having to not be head of the home. And ladies, I I know you don't understand why men... Uh, talk about the responsibility and the weight that they carry because it don't look like... I'm being honest. I, I know that we don't identify all the time one with another. But in their own respects, both of them bear their burdens. And in their own respects, as sin, in as much as sin enters into our lives, both of those roles become burdensome one to another. Burdensome. You know, I think one of the things the Lord was saying is this, that it's going to be an unnatural thing, Eve for you to yield to the authority of your husband. It's going to be an unnatural thing. It's going to take an, an, ac- an action of grace and a spiritual initiative to yield to him and to occupy that position in the home. Let me tell you something. A lot of times, one of the ways that Satan seeks to discourage us is just through the positions that we maintain in life. This is true of the home. Let me tell you something. Nowhere that God puts you is a bum rap. You ever stop and think about that? God doesn't give any bad deals. You may say, Preacher, you don't know my husband. I don't have to know your husband. I know your Savior. You say, Preacher, you don't know my wife. You don't under- I don't have to know your wife. I know your Savior. And I know that He will do what is right in your heart and in your life and in your home. But oftentimes, in as much as sin enters our heart, you know what happens? We grow discontented. When we grow discontented with Christ, there's nothing that will satisfy us. And we grow discontented and we run to and fro trying to find anything and everything and something and nothing to fill the void in our lives. And we grow discouraged with our current state. Not, that's true not just in the home. That might be true in your workplace. That might be true in your family. Whatever it might be, a lot of times those things are open doors for Satan to discourage us when sin gets in, where they can be a joy. Just as sickness or pain can be a stepping stone to a closer walk with God, it can also be a stumbling block if we allow Satan to use it thus. The same thing is true of the positions we have in our lives. And then finally, and I'm, I'm done, I, I'm going to say that about six more times, but not just in our positions, but I have a purpose that we have in life. 
Look at the last phrase. As the Lord gives out the punishment, tells them how this new way of life will be, He says this to Adam. It says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. You know, that had to be discouraging to hear. That had to be discouraging to hear. Some of you men, you can testify to this. You know what it's like as you get up day after day, eat the same breakfast, make the same drive into work, see the same group of faces, do the same job, and day in and day out, it's easy sometimes for that mundaneness to begin to suck the life out of you. Some of you men can test. I know, listen, a lot of younger people, they don't know what it's like to hold a job long enough to feel that way. But some of you older men, you know what it's like. You've been in that shape before. And sometimes you just get this feeling. And not just you men, but you ladies, I'm sure you get this same feeling. What's the purpose in all of it? What's the purpose in all of it? Just live and labor and work and earn money to spend money. What's the purpose in all of it? As folks get older, oftentimes they grow weary of life. And they wonder if they even have a purpose in being here. I've had, you wouldn't believe the numbers of people I've had tell me that. Say to me, preacher, I don't even know why God keeps me here. You'd be amazed how many people say that to me. Amazed. Oftentimes, just through that sense of purpose, we can grow discouraged and disgusted with life. And oftentimes, through that mundaneness, which comprises life, you understand, that's all life is, is a series of 24-hour days. They may differ in the content, but every day begins with the sun rising and it ends with the sun setting. Oftentimes, that's what, that's what comprises life, you understand the day in and the day out. Oh, how easy it is to grow weary as we serve God day by day. Why do you think God exhorted us to be not weary in well-doing? Because there's a real danger in growing weary in well-doing. And Satan will seek an open door. You say, what do I do, preacher, if that's me? You adjust your focus back on what your grand purpose is. (laughs) Listen, if you're saved by the grace of God, your great purpose is not to gain a, to get a paycheck at the end of the week. It's not wrong to get a paycheck at the end of the week. That's not your great purpose. If you're saved by the grace of God, your great purpose is not just to put food in the refrigerator. God bless you for doing that. Hey, I mean, all of us fat folks appreciate you putting food in the refrigerator. But understand that your great purpose in life is greater than that, that God has a, a purpose and a plan and a work that He's doing in your life and in the lives of others through you. You may say, I've outlived my use, preacher. No, you haven't. God knows better than you do. And if you had outlived your use, He would have took you on home. God has a purpose for you. And you don't have to allow Satan to lie and to deceive you into thinking that your life is useless and pointless. You see, if he can discourage us, if he can get us to the place where we're just enduring life instead of enjoying it, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. He's robbed us of all the strength that we have in this battle that we're in.